0: Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we are not left to fear the world, to fear what man can do to us, because Christ is on the throne, and you've given us the gospel, given us salvation to go out and conquer the world. And I pray that we would do that faithfully, and we would put our church and our family before our own desires. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the things that has been heightened recently obviously with the suicide rate of young children, teenagers especially, is the lack of hope that people have in the world. But COVID just made that much more apparent. It, it's, it's been like that throughout time. How can man have hope without God? Which obviously there is no hope without God, but that's the journey, right? That's, God uses a lot of times that searching to draw someone to him. And we see that a lot in movies, And literature so uh, McCarthy from um, all the pretty horses to no country for old men the entire point of that arc that literary arc is how does man find hope in a world that has so much evil and yet God is sovereign over that evil he's trying to reconcile those things how can I have hope in that kind of world which is a compelling story it's a compelling question to to ask it also is a question that was asked in like Shawshank Redemption. You've seen the movie Shawshank Redemption. That's primarily the purpose of of that movie. So hope is a very tangible, real thing that we have, that we struggle with. And even Christians do with with self-doubt. But notice though, so we have a natural propensity to be hopeful, or at least to desire to be hopeful, whether we are or not. But notice though, so postmillennialism, especially in our current climate, is very attractive to people because they want to be hopeful. They want to see something in the future that is going to be conquering the world instead of being defeated by the world. But notice though, we do not believe postmillennialism because we want it to be true. Right? We we don't. Scripture, it's not because I believe this, therefore Scripture teaches it. Right, our reason for believing it is not because I want it to be true. So we gotta be very careful about that because a lot of recent trends in people converting to post-millennialism in general is I think a lot of it's through just, they just wanna be hopeful in a time where the US is going crazy. So that's a, we wanna take that energy, right? We wanna direct it though to good reasons to be, to be hopeful and not just your own desires. So to give you a little background or my journey in eschatology and eschatology is typically the study of the end times but of course if you're a post-millennialist and you don't think this is the end times it's more just future times right it's just the future of the world your your theology of the future and when i was converted in about 2003 2004 eventually got into young earth creation pretty heavily which has been a great blessing to me but second to that was eschatology. So I was premillennialist for about five years just intensely, like going through how to break down Revelation and Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and all of this, this fun stuff. Uh, but I kind of, I, providentially, uh, God brought Van Til's theology into my life and his apologetic in about 2010. And I became so, so obsessed with that, I just put the eschatology thing down for a while and then started going in that direction. But about 2016 and 17, I realized that eschatology was still this weak point in my doctrine because uh, I, I knew I was questioning premillennialism, but I also didn't know what to do then with those questions. I didn't know where to go from there. And so I started reading some books on postmillennialism, uh, Bonson's, I think it's Victory in Jesus, and then some other talks. And one of the things I found that I was unconvinced by, is most of the arguments are based on a particular ter- interpretation of the Olivet Discourse, one, two, Revelation 17 and 18, so the great whore and the beast and who, what are these images, like these nations, is this the church, is this Israel, whatever, what, what is this? And then also Revelation 21 and 22, where we have the new heavens and the new earth and is that uh, this already not yet, so you have it already happening, but yet it's still future, and you have that whole what can be a mess sometimes. And I was looking at that, and it seemed, it seemed very shaky ground, because there was a lot of internal division amongst postmillennialists about, so for the Olivet Discourse, where exactly does it transition, or does it from AD 70 to the future, to second coming? Is there a transition in that passage, or in any of the, the passages, the accounts of it? Some would say there is no transition, it's all AD 70. Some would say there is a transition, but there's a lot of division on on whether there is or there is not and where exactly that transition is. So it just seemed very shaky that I should hang my post-millennial hat on figuring that out. Also Revelation 17 and 18, there's great division amongst post-millennialists about who is the great whore and who is the beast. And then you look at Revelation 21 and 22 with the New heavens and a new earth. Traditional postmillennialists would say that is that the, the direct focus of the passage is the future new heavens and a new earth that Christ will bring back in His second coming when He makes the world new. There's no more curse. There's no more death. There's no more suffering. There's no more pain. But then you get this this uh, rogue rogue group of postmillennialists that come on and they want to emphasize the already of it almost at the exclusion of the not yet. They say already not yet, but you never hear about the not yet. All you hear about is the already. And so Revelation 21 and 22 is all about how that's already been started now, and they get an it's a slippery slope because if the passage is directly about the already and not mostly about the not yet, you can slip into uh, hyperpreterism or full preterism. Which sadly enough, I hear Gary DeMar, who's a famous post-millennialist, has been a blessing to the the church for decades, is now, I'm not sure he's rejecting the second coming, but he's at least saying he sees no passages that support the second coming, which is clearly a problem, okay? I think at the heart of that issue is when you get so focused on the already and you don't emphasize the not yet, you can lose the not yet very quickly. Okay, so all that to say, this seemed very shaky. Right. If we have this much internal division, how can I say I'm a postmillennialist because I have these passages figured out, these three? I didn't like that. So I started thinking through, well, how would I defend this? How would I defend postmillennialism? And we're gonna get into that. So one thing we need to do, though, is we need to soften our confidence. Postmillennialists have been uh, a little abrasive recently, and I think part of that is because premillennialists have been knocking us so much. You know, after the Second World War, no one's a premillennialist after World War II, right? No one can be a pre-millennial or a postmillennialist after that. And they always needle us, you know, that we're, we don't actually understand doctrine or the times. But as a result of that though, or as a response, we are now becoming very, we mock them often. We don't take them seriously. And I think that's disrespectful to, to our brothers, especially because we are on shaky ground in some of our own interpretation. Okay, so we need, we need both sides need to be humble here, and, and let's reason, reason through the scriptures. Gary DeMar's situation should give us, should make us humble across the board as, as post millennialists. So do not mock your brothers. Do not mock them on this. Premillennialists, their interpretation of the end times is not irrational. It makes a lot of sense if you accept one pivotal assumption. And that assumption is that the Olivet Discourse in Revelation is primarily, Revelation 4 through 19, is primarily, or is almost entirely, for another generation, not that generation. If you hold that interpretation, if you hold that assumption, then it makes sense to go do what they're doing. If it's a future generation that is yet to come, it makes sense then to keep looking for that and look at signs and then piece these things together. Now, I don't accept that assumption. Okay? But given that assumption, they are very logical in in what they're doing how they're trying to carry that out. And they do respect scripture, right? They do hold it's inerrant and they really want you to follow what it says. So the heart of it is right, I just think they're misguided some in how they apply their their hermeneutic. So let's not mock them, okay? Let's reason with them, reason with them through this. All right, so in eschatology, we have basically three positions. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. You notice the common theme is they're all tied to the millennium. So premillennialists would say that Christ comes back prior to the millennium. His second coming starts the millennium, brings his kingdom on earth, and starts ruling. Post-millennialism millennial, would say that Christ comes back after the millennium. And then amillennialism would also say Christ comes back after the, after the millennium. But the millennium is not this tangible thing. It's more of this like spiritual kingdom that came and it's it's harder to understand. We'll get into a little bit of that soon. But those are the three positions. But amillennialists would say that Christ comes back after the millennium. All right, so if we take these three positions, we start to contrast them with each other. So premillennialism, second coming occurs before the millennium, postmillennialism. a second coming occurs after the millennium, and notice then what, what follows from this. So we then have Christ's kingdom arrives at his second coming, not his first coming. That's a key point. Post-millennialism millennialism would say, Christ's kingdom arrived at his first coming. So pre is at, it's at his second coming, post is at its first coming. Pre would say the world becomes darker, I mean that spiritually, darker over time until the second coming. The gospel is not winning, right, in, in the world. Postmillennialism would say the world becomes brighter over time until the second coming. So then obviously the church loses the battle with the world prior to the second coming. In fact, that's what brings back the second coming of Christ is it gets so bad. Well, it depends if you're, where you land on the rapture and the church being taken. I won't get into all those details, but basically God's people, whether it's Israel still here or the church or a combination or whatever, God's people are being persecuted so greatly that Jesus then comes back to stave their annihilation. So the world, the, the church loses, God's people lose. In post-millennialism, the church wins. They win the battle with the world prior to the second coming. All right, and what is amillennialism? Well, amillennialism is, is very hard to clarify exactly what it is because it seems to, it reminds me a lot, I don't mean this to be insulting, I just mean it, I think it's confusing. Uh, a lot of Lutheran doctrine on, like the sacraments or uh, the atonement. So they they want to uh, they want to uphold they want to uphold evangelical or Reformed terminology on one on the one hand, and they also want to affirm Catholic terminology on the other. And so you get this back and forth. But these these this terminology is contradictory of each other. Like you cannot use both. And so they, they end up picking both, so you can't actually nail a Lutheran down on where he sits because he just he constantly jumps between these language games. It's like, well, you can't do that, sir. Like, you have to pick one. But I find it very frustrating to, to get to anywhere with a Lutheran. And the same with Amillennialists is they'll, they'll say things like, well, the kingdom arrived, but it's not really here. It's, you know, it's spiritual. It's like, "Well, what does that even mean? Well, it doesn't show itself tangibly, like physically in the world. Well, are you a Christian? Yes. Were you spiritually changed by the gospel? Yes. So you are forgiven in Christ and you are now serving him? Yes. Does that service look different than the world serving? Well, yes. So what, why is that not a tangible change? Then? Like, how is the kingdom spiritually not manifested physically? I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I think what's at the root of this, though, why they reject that, is they are pessimistic about the future or there's like an equilibrium. Right, so it kind of goes up and down, like the, the world gets better, it gets worse, it gets better, it gets worse. So there's no real progress in the future, it just kind of goes like this. Or historically, and Van Til would be in this camp, it just goes down. It, may, it might go like this, but it's going, it's going down, like the stock market as it goes down, right? Ebbs and flows, but goes, goes down. So if they accept that doctrine, okay, which is very premillennial, they have to then change our view of the kingdom The kingdom cannot be this thing that takes over the world. So so they're picking things from both camps and I find it very conflicting and confusing to really nail down. So there may be a clear presentation of amillennialism and I apologize if I I misstated it, but it's actually kind of irrelevant to this talk because if we can demonstrate postmillennialism to be true, then if amillennialists are really just confused postmillennialists, then it's fine, right? It doesn't matter. Um, so I, I hear some that are optimistic on millennialists, like it makes no sense to me, I understand. I understand what you're saying right now. <laughs> like that just seems like a confused post-millennialism. Now let's say that you are not that and you're of this other ilk. Well then it's wrong and you should be post-millennialist. Right, so whether I present the position correct or not is kind of irrelevant to, to, to this talk. All right, so let's continue on th- then in this. So as we go through pre-millennialism, the millennial position I'm gonna argue that it's actually unfortunate that, mul- that the Millennium is at- attached to each uh, term to each camp I think it's confusing for for people in fact I think that's primarily why we haven't grounded this very well I- I- in our reasoning I'm gonna give you an example why when did the Millennium begin please answer Yes, sir. Christ when Christ first came. Great. Okay. So Christ first coming. The millennium came at Christ first coming. All right, so now so that's one position. The problem with that, it's a great answer, by the way. You get five, you get five Eschatal, you get five Bonson points today. Okay? <laughs> that's that's a big deal. I used to give out Bonson and Van points in class. That's a good one. Those are five. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is that Revelation 17 and 18, right, which is the the fall of the great whore and then obviously the beasts, and then 19 is supposed to be the gospel going out to conquer the nations. Well, 20 clearly, in, in how the text is written, comes after those chapters. I don't mean just numerically, but it like actually comes after those chapters historically. So, If the millennium was set up at the first coming, well, those events didn't happen until decades after. So that would seem to have a conflict in our interpretation. So what else? You might say, well, when he cast out demons, though, Jesus said the kingdom came, right? So he's casting out demons, and so therefore, the millennium is here. Well, if the millennium is here, I mean, Satan is bound, right? He's chained during the millennium. Well, he doesn't seem to be very chained when this is going on, when they're casting out demons. He seems to be very active still. Right, even when Jesus, when Christ said he saw uh, Satan falling from heaven like lightning, Satan's still not bound yet. I think most would agree, he's not bound yet. He's been cast out, but he's not been bound yet. And that was still during Christ's ministry. So we have a problem here, okay? When did the millennium, and we're hanging our hat on our understanding of the millennium being why we believe what we believe. So we should know when it started. It seems reasonable to ask that question. Someone say what about his ascension? Maybe it came at Christ's ascension. Well, in Revelation 12, the common postmillennial reading is that the woman is Israel and then so Mary being the mother then of giving birth to the Messiah and then, you know, the dragon comes to devour the child which is Herod trying to kill Jesus. And I think that's all good, you know, interpretation. But then, of course, Herod doesn't succeed and the child is drawn up to heaven. And then what does the dragon do? Persecutes the woman and her seed, right? So if the Millennium came at the ascension, then Satan's still not bound. He's going out to to persecute the woman and, and, and the seed. He doesn't seem very bound at that point. So we still have a problem. Problem here. Some people say, "Well, at Pentecost, right? Gospel or um, Holy Spirit comes down. Beautiful scene, and the gospel now going out into all the languages to change the world." Well, if if, if that is our position, then you look at um, so so Jesus at the Ascension goes up. Pentecost happens. The persecution then in Revelation 12 is 10 days. Again, seems unlikely. Right, Because when Jesus ascended, oh, I told Justin I, would, I wouldn't do that, but I did. All right. So when Jesus ascended in Revelation 12, he then persecutes the woman and her seed. But then we're saying at the millennium, when it starts, at, at uh, Pentecost, he's bound. Well, that was what, like 10 days? So it just seems very unlikely that the, the persecution that Satan is doing here is only 10 days. It seems highly unlikely. So what are we going to do? What now? And I could, do, I could do more of this, the two witnesses of Revelation. I could probably pick that apart. Or I could pick some other things apart. If, if we want to just rush in and say that we are post entirely because we can better interpret certain images of Revelation or a part of the Olivet Discourse, I think we're on very shaky ground. I mean, does anyone have an answer for this? I think I'd have one, and I'll give it later. I'm not trying to introduce doubt into, into your mind. I think I do have a reasonable explanation for this. But it might be wrong. I could be wrong on that. And it wouldn't affect my post-millennial position. See, that's, that's the point, though. I could be wrong on this, but it's not gonna affect my position. Does anyone have a, a guess? It's established that grace birth. So it's a good, a good point, Barney, here. So one of the key ways to solve this is there's, it's a transition period. And we'll, we'll learn this with the kingdom as we unpack the kingdom. Jesus will have all these passages about the kingdom coming, and it comes in different ways, right? And it, it's just getting unfolded over time. But you could get confused looking at that and thinking, well, I thought the kingdom already came, and now it's coming in this way. And you get confused thinking that there are these multiple kingdoms, or somehow it came and then it left, and then it came back. And really it's just an unfolding. It's a it's a maturation of, of of the kingdom. So good. Good job, Arnie. So I think we'll but we'll we'll get into the timeline of this How many later on. How many Bonson points. We'll give you 6. That was good. That's good. Yeah, there's an age gap here, right? So we to account for that. A handicap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Uh, so basically there's a the There's a transitional period, right, where something could start, but the full effects of it, or the full, um, you can you can, you can have the office of the president, but not execute all of the plans, things like that. Like a a nation could be started at a certain time, but certain things aren't enacted, and like you could have different beginnings of America, right, based on certain things that that happened. That that makes sense. So you can have a start of something but then there's such radical changes in that thing that it's almost like a new birth you know, as, as you go or a development of it. And that's what we'll argue about the millennium later. <laughs> So one of the things we have to, I think we have to. Or his office is officially
1: established yeah,
0: the yeah. So one of the things we have to se- separate, though, I think is, I think the kingdom arrived at a different time that the millennium happened. I think we do have to separate those those two things, um, and that gets into the unfolding of the kingdom. So we're going to get into when Jesus' kingdom came. He said, "Now my kingdom has come." Right? If you see this, it has come. But he's not reigning yet. He's not ascended. So there is a time where the kingdom came and yet Jesus wasn't on the throne yet. Quinn. So I was reading Daniel, I think it's 7, 7 or 9 when it says that when he, for the son of man, came up to God that he was given the kingdom. Yeah. I don't know if that was going to happen. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is where it can get confusing you thinking that well the kingdom then didn't come when Jesus was casting out demons. And, and I would say that a reasonable way to interpret all of these different variations is an unfolding of the kingdom. It's a, it's a, it's a maturing of the kingdom. It's a development of the kingdom. And we'll see that 8070 70 is a pivotal moment in the kingdom, kingdom being established. It's, it's so pivotal that you'd almost talk about it as the kingdom has now come. Like it is that, that important that you'd be that emphatic about it. But one of the assumptions we're using here, by the way, as we reconcile these passages, we are assuming they can't contradict each other, right? We're assuming that Jesus doesn't actually contradict himself. Of course, with liberals, that's not an assumption they hold. So then they just take these passages and then, you know, 1 Corinthians 2.14, they don't understand, understand these things because they're the natural man. But we don't, we don't hold that God can contradict himself, and so therefore we reconcile, in the most reasonable way, passages that would seem to conflict. Yes, sir. as the Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right on it. Well, we'll we're not gonna get into the, the whole timeline of, I do think AD 70 fulfills a lot of revelation. So I don't, I don't deny, deny that. But I think you're onto, you're onto it though, is that when we think of things like binding Satan, we think of it as immediate. And sometimes stuff like that does happen immediately. But it doesn't have to. In fact, we speak speak that way commonly, right? We say something happened, but it happened actually over weeks. And there's nothing nothing wrong with that. So I think think that's where you solve a lot of these apparent inconsistencies by looking at the founding of the kingdom and the binding of Satan happened over a period of time and not all, all at once. I do think there's a moment though when the kingdom officially came. I think Jesus is fairly clear on that. But there's, anyway, there's this development part. Anything else, Jeff? Did you have something to? Oh, just a couple, at least for me to think of, the uh, millennium as just a a part of the kingdom. It's a a year of jubilee kind of thing, a a, a calendar within the kingdom will do certain things at certain times, certain things are promised. And so there's this concept, whatever we define in millennium, it's Mm. not identical to the kingdom. It happens in the kingdom at Christ's price back and forth. Yeah, that's good. And then secondly on that, okay, when you're talking about Christ ruling and reigning, that's his business. Like everybody wants to be king and think, Well I do it this way. The problem is you're not the king and mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't do it your way. Mm-hmm. So we always have to have a position of humility because his ways are past finding out. He's actually a better king than he could ever be. And so there are mysterious things that why do you allow that? Yeah. I'm in charge. You're not yeah. following me. Amen. Right. Amen. And that's why we try to take a reasonable interpretation to reconcile the the, the passages. Okay, so how would you defend it then? So I presented the problem. Maybe I should just stop, go home. Well, not go home, go to worship. (laughs) And you guys can research this, figure it out. How would you defend this? This is the problem. This is the problem right now in our post-millennialism. Pro- most post-millennialists I've ever talked to, like most Vantilians, who I often find are kind of just confused, um, is they don't act we don't have it rooted well. It needs to be rooted well. Because if it's not and you hit hard times, something bad happens in your life, and you are holding on to this thing because you want there to be f- hope in the future, not because the Bible has taught you this, but because you want it to be true, you will not hold this, especially when times are difficult, which is entirely the times that we're in, right? We experience this different ways. But when our backs are against the wall, when life is hard, and we want to give up, which is our, our old nature coming back to mess with us, what is going to keep us rooted? It should be scripture and what scripture teaches. All right. So you want to hear how I'm going to argue it? You wanna hear it? Okay. I think we can establish this fairly reasonably in a way where premillennialists, if he was with me in this study, would have to concede each point. But if he concedes each point, it leads to postmillennialism. And that is entirely about the kingdom. I think we need to shift our focus from the millennium to the kingdom. What is this kingdom, okay, and how does it operate? If we focus on the kingdom entirely, I think we can show fairly reasonably that this is a post-millennial world. So the first question then that we would ask, did Christ's kingdom arrive at his first coming? And premillennialists would many times agree with that. Now they're going to say, but Israel rejected it, so he yanked it away. And that's pretty simple to refute. Okay, but that, that'll be their response. But notice though that response is much easier to refute than the whole what generation is this addressing problem? Which is a much slipperier thing to actually nail down a pre premillennialist on. So did Christ's kingdom arrive at his first coming? Yes, it did. All right. Did his kingdom survive his death? Yes, it did. So his kingdom came and it survived his death. Great. Is the kingdom growing? Yes, it's growing. The kingdom is growing. How is the kingdom growing? The Great Commission, gospel going out, conquering the world, the church grows, obviously through the redemption of man, through the gospel, and now people love God who didn't love God through Christ and his atonement. Now they have the holy spirit and now they're orienting their lives to follow god's law and to do their vocation in a way that pleases god and the world is changed in fellowship in worship and in laboring having a lot of kids raising them up to love god and generationally the world is is changed the kingdom is growing all right so the kingdom's growing it's growing through the gospel conquering the world well then what is the end result of this growth? The domination of the world through the gospel by the church. Christ's body wins. It seems fairly, I think it seems much clearer this way. If you work, yes, go ahead. Do you genuinely think people would agree that the kingdom is growing? Oh, I, th- I, think if I, sh- I think if I show them the passages, we're going to show them, okay. they will. No, I don't, I don't think. Yeah, but notice, they're depending on their previous but notice what they're doing, Tyler, in, in an act that is not consistent with their typical method. They're going to what they see, and now what Scripture teaches, and then we have them, right? This is not natural for them. Like they're supposed to be the ones that go to Scripture. Like we are rooted in Scripture, and we will reason with you post-millennialists from Scripture. Well, great. So let's go to it. Stop looking at the world. That's irrelevant to what. If God says the kingdom is growing, it's growing. Whether you can see that in the world or not is irrelevant. um, Yeah, go ahead. If we're saying that, though, that presupposes that the kingdom is here, right? That's why we start, yes, with the number one. Right. But that's like if we're saying this growth is occurring because Scripture said it's growing. Yes. Oh, they all build on each other so i can't get to four without one and i can't get to two without one and i can't get to three without two and i can't get to, to four without one through three and i can't get to five without one through four that's why we work through that order so if i don't make my case well on any of these right then anything, everything that comes after falls away but i think i can from from scripture and if we can just assume we can on this. postmodernism seems fairly obvious if you work through these questions. And that is how I think we should be arguing for it. I think we should focus entirely on the kingdom. Don't get sidetracked on images and, at least for the most part, images and timing of things and all of this stuff that we, that we get wrapped up in, which are fun and I'm not saying it's, it's irrelevant, it's, it's relevant, but a common inter- uh, principle of hermeneutics is that we t- we interpret the unclear by the clear which makes them the unclear clear okay or at least more understandable so you start with the clear and then you work your way to the unclear so let's not start with the unclear right without first going going to the clear and i think the kingdom is reasonably clear on this any other questions All right, so next time we're going to start with the first question and then we're going to work our way through uh, scripture. Justin asked me if I was going to quote some Van Til in this presentation. And I said, no, this is actually, I think, the first presentation I've ever created where Van Til is not mentioned. So there will be no quoting of Van Til. So I hope you're okay with that. But it's just straight up scripture. We're just going to go through the word all the way through but your with language it. Games yeah. Really do matter oh, yeah. Your of language. Yes. Yes, definitely, definitely. Wittgenstein forever pops up, whether I mention him or not. All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, God, that when we sinned in Adam, you did not leave the world in darkness. You did not annihilate it immediately. You gave us grace and you have been working out that story throughout time. And we are part of that story, That this perfect story that we are your children in it. God, I pray that we would always go to Scripture to, to root our, our positions, to root our views in life, and that we would come together in humility and in grace and joy as we uh, test each other in what we believe and become more rooted in, in Christ. Please lift us up in worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.